Thanks, Mary. I am Susan, a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, y'all. I've been a member since July the 8th of 1974, and for that fact, I am truly, truly, truly grateful. Um, my home group, as Pat so eloquently told you this morning, uh, is the Going to Any Links Al-Anon group. We meet on Monday and Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Monday night's a literature study, and uh, Wednesday night's step study, and... Uh, and then uh, we are usually there on Friday and Saturday night at the open speaker meeting. So anytime that you're in Tulsa, we would love to have you. We have babysitting, and, and uh, we really believe in family recovery and are committed to that and really, really try to try to present that. Um, I, it was funny. Uh, you know, we, we just get in strange cars and with strange people and go strange places and don't think anything about it. You know, I, I called up Todd. I was having a little trouble getting from it's not easy to get from Tulsa to Dayton I discovered and so I had to go to Cincinnati and Todd's like oh yeah just do that and you know and uh we're in a little budget crunch and he's like we'll just pay you when you get there and it's like well I don't think that's going to work so and he's like well here just take my credit card so he gives me his credit card over the phone you know and it's like whoo I said we are so funny we get in strangers cars go strange places we get people we don't know our credit card numbers you know we don't think anything about it you know and that's just who we are that's what we do and I love it I love it and uh it really is an honor and privilege to be here um it's always nice to be invited back it's um it's always nice to be invited back and uh, I was here a few years ago, and I was thinking uh, during lunch, you know, what's transpired between the last time I was here, and a lot has transpired, a lot. So hopefully I'll, I'll get to that point and tell you about it. Um, I want to thank the committee for asking me, and I want to thank Mary. She's been an awesome hostess, and uh, she keeps her house at the right temperature, which is very important. <laughs> when you get older, you'll understand. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, well, I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and, and do that in an hour. And it's hard to put 31 years of recovery plus all the years prior in an hour, so I'll try to do that quickly. Um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the speakers. And Pat did an awesome job this morning, and that Alateen just, just blow me away. Uh, Rob's right. Uh, I got to sponsor Alateens when I was here. did it for about five years, and um, they just never ceased to amaze me. Never ceased to amaze me. And, and uh, the thing that was always amazing to me when I was sponsoring, so many of the kids, they really got alcoholism. They really understood that their drinking parent was sick, that they had a disease. And they really understood that. It was the non-alcoholics they couldn't understand, you know. And it's like, why is, why is mom so weird, you know. And <laughs> They really taught me a lot about my own situation, you know, and the, the, the Alateens are great. They are just awesome, awesome. So, anyway, I am, uh, I live in, I sleep and live in Broken Arrow, which is right outside of Tulsa. I am from Texas. Uh, I grew up in Texas. I'm a Texas girl. I love Texas. I love being a Texan. Um, I'm a little sad that I sleep in Oklahoma, but... <laughs> But, hey, we won the Rose Bowl this year, so, you know, <laughs> it's been a great year. Uh, I grew up in a town um, in uh, West Texas, uh, Odessa, Texas, and uh, it's Permian Basin, oil field, flat. You can see forever, <laughs> forever. There are no trees. In fact, there's a town out there that's named No Trees. And... Uh, <laughs> 
You know, and when I did move to Tulsa, I was, I mean, for a year, I'd drive around, I'd be so amazed at the trees. It's like, my God, look at the trees. You know, it's just, um, I grew up in tumbleweeds, and, you know, tumbleweed is a really good example for me. Uh, pretty much describes my life. You know, they just kind of roll, and wherever they land, where the wind quits blowing, that's where they land, and that's kind of story of my life before I got to Al-Anon, you know, just wherever, you know, and that's where I landed. And and I'm just kind of like that tumbleweed. And uh, But I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, got two parents, and, and uh, you know, they both did the absolute best that they knew how to do. Um, they loved their kids. Uh, they loved family. Um, they were a little messed up, but, you know, they just did the best they could. They just absolutely did the best they could. My dad, we were talking at lunch, you know, my dad was an engineer. He worked in television and absolutely lived and breathed uh, his uh, profession. He loved work. He loved work. And he worked He worked seven days a week. As long as I can remember, he worked seven days a week. And, and so mom was pretty much the one that I learned all my control issues from because uh, uh, she raised us kids and uh, daddy pretty much dealt with us through her and, and uh, you know, and we were just, we just did the deal. And um, I learned some things growing up, um, didn't ask questions because I don't know where I picked it up, but somehow I assumed that you weren't supposed to ask questions. You were supposed to have already had it figured out. And so uh, I just, and mother was really busy a lot and, and uh so we didn't have a whole lot of conversations, and I tried. My whole growing up was mostly trying to stay out of trouble because the last thing you want to do is get mom mad at you. Uh, it wasn't a pretty sight, and uh, and it scared me. And so I learned real early uh, to be afraid of authority and to figure out what they wanted from me and give that back to them so I wouldn't get in trouble. And that's just some of the, the ideas I picked up. Uh, so you didn't ask questions, so I just observed a lot. You know, I just watched you and tried to figure out how to make my insides match what I perceived your outsides were. And uh, uh, because whatever your outsides were must have been what your insides were. And so, you know, I just tried to make all that happen. And, boy, I made a mess of life. I just really did. I grew up in church. Mother took us to church all the time. Um, I grew up in the Methodist Church, which is probably one of the more liberal ones, you know, and and so it was okay to dance and it was okay to do lots of stuff, you know, and and uh, so I just didn't think much about anything except trying to stay out of trouble. Um, grades were real important in in our family, and I learned real early how to get the good grades. I'm a good test taker, and so uh, uh, I figured out really quick that if you brought home straight A's. You were the blessed child for that period, and so, you know, I worked real hard at getting grades, and, you know, I was born, I think I was born five foot eight. I think I've always been taller than everybody, you know, it's like, I was listening to Kaylin this morning, and, you know, and she was, and I always wanted to be short. I always wanted to be small and petite and have the long flowing hair, and, you know, uh, when I was about four, I cut my hair, and so my mother punished me by always keeping my hair short, and so I've never had long hair, and uh, uh, I was born tall and uh, when I graduated from high school I, I weighed probably 106 pounds and I would love to get closer to that today but man but 106 on five foot eight just doesn't go far so I'm like this like linky tall skinny gawky kid walking around and had to wear braces when braces were not the fashionable thing to wear and and uh, I'll really date myself in third grade I started having to wear glasses and you know they were the little pointy ugh. 
just, uh. So I discovered a couple things. I, I love movies. I love the happy ever after, and they were always just, you know, every time they were always happy ever after. And I love to read. Um, uh, I just learned how to live in that fantasy world because in my fantasy world, I was five foot two. I was cute. I had long flowing hair. I was very popular and, you know, and, uh, the night would always come in my fantasy world and we'd, you know, ride off and live happily ever after. Um, so that was kind of the ideas that I grew up with. And I remember when, one other thing, one of the things, when I got here, uh, my sponsor put me right in the middle of the big book and, and uh, reading. And I love the writing about fear. I so identify with fear. Fear, when I did my first inventory, fear was as far back as I could remember. I've always, my whole life is based on fear. Fear of what not to do, fear of what to do, fear of losing something, fear of not getting something. It's always based around fear. And there have been times in my life where it's been that paralyzing, totally all-consuming fear that you just can't hardly breathe. And fear has just always been in my life. And so I base lots of decisions based on fear. So fear has always been my companion. And um, I remember uh, it was high school graduation. I graduated from Permian High School. And per- at that time, Permian was a pretty big high school in the state. And um a new school in our our town and and it was a big school and and uh I remember we were at graduation and I was real nervous that day I was really I was really scared because it meant that you know this whole chapter was closing and I didn't know what the next chapter was because mother hadn't informed me what the next step was to do you know and and I just remember I, I was really anxious that day and my mom's solution was give me a volume and she gave me a Valium, and I just kind of slid through back at <laughs> graduation. And I remember they were t- calling out the top ten, and uh, one of one of my one of my isms is that um, uh, is perfectionism. And you know, anything less than perfect is never good enough. It is not good enough. And so I've spent I spent a lot of time trying to achieve that perfection. And if you can't achieve it, then you just don't do it. I mean, that's been my model. If you can't get there, just don't do it. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of classes that way when I was going to college. It's like if I can't make that A, I just drop the class, you know. And, it's like, and that would be a decision based on the first day of class, you know. It's like, okay, I don't understand this class, so I'm dropping this sucker, you know. It's like, oh. So they were calling out the top ten, and I was fifth in my class. And I remember not just celebrating that. It was, it's not good enough. My parents are going to be disappointed in me. It is not good enough. And that's been the basis of my life. It's never good enough. It's never enough. It is never enough. And uh, sure enough, they came to me afterwards and said, um, you know, we just don't have money to send you off to college, which was another dream pop because I always had this fantasy that I'll, I'll go off to college and somehow I'll get the curves in the right place and I'll get popular and it'll all fall into place. You know, I could never get it to all fall into place. And and uh, they came to me, and it's like, we don't have money to send you off, and so you're going to have to stay here. And I had to live at home and go to the little junior college there. And, and uh, you know, I just had all this stuff and um, never dated. You know, I was always the one that went and decorated the prom and then went home and babysat while everybody went off to the prom. I mean, I just... 
Oh, life was just sucky. <laughs> Basically, it was just sucky. <laughs> and I just, I mean, I got always, I look back and I always just never quite fit. You know, I just always never quite fit. And I just lived in my little fantasy world. And I went off to this little junior college and I was sitting in a tree class. And my first obsession walked in the door. And I mean, he walked in, and uh, oh, I caught that obsession. And you know, it's like having a starfish on your face. You know, it's just like it attaches right here, and you know, it's just like that's all you think about, and that's all you see because it's attached right here, and and uh, you got to nurse it because it's attached. I mean, it's just oh. And he attached right there, and. Uh, uh, I could hardly wait for the next class. I mean, it was just all I thought about. It's like, who is he? And oh, how can I meet him? And and so I got there early, which is going to, this training helped me in bars when I ended up in the bars. But, you know, it's like I got there early and I figured out how his eyes would look when he walked through that door. And I put myself right in that place, you know, so that eyes would meet, you know. And, and uh, sure enough. You know, our eyes met, and he came up to me after class and asked me out for coffee. And long story short, I married him. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we started dating, and he was living at home too. And he was uh, my grand sponsor. Talks about there's two types of people walking around in this world, and they're either a turtle or they're a skunk. You know, and usually turtles and skunks. Uh, marry and get together and but we were two turtles and two turtles in the same house makes for a quiet house you know it's like you know we go in our shells and you know just not talk and and uh that was pretty much us and and he was a turtle too and and uh we got married and neither one of us knew anything about anything and you know and uh i remember that day getting married and and it just you know that fear struck again and it's like my god what am i doing i don't know him i don't know how to get married i don't know how to be a wife i don't know how to cook and uh, uh just all this stuff going on in my head and one of the things you don't ever do is cross my mom and and uh, I, I remember trying to picture walking up to her and say I can't get married today I just can't do it and picturing her reaction and picturing getting married to him and picturing her reaction and picturing marrying him it was just easier softer way to go ahead and just marry him and I mean, it just was and so so we got married and it was fun for about six days and reality set in and shit And so, you know, it's like, okay, well, we've done that. So what's the next step? Well, you know, the logical next step is that you got to start a family. And so, um, oh, man, I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage and discovered that, you know, I really should be asking some questions like, do we have insurance or, you know, any of that kind of stuff? And we didn't. And all of a sudden we're in debt and, you know, there's no money and, uh, I have no skills. We met in college, and, you know, he's still trying to go to school, and I dropped out because, you know, you're supposed to be this wife. You know, I'm kind of like on the generation where, you know, my mom always stayed home and raised the kids, and it was just not quite fashionable to go to work and do all that, so it's like on that cusp. And so, you know, it seemed like the thing to do was to quit school and stay home and start a family, and, like, I knew what that was about. But anyway, uh, and I got pregnant again and, and uh, had my first son, and, you know, it's just all that stuff that goes in your head. I don't know about y'all, but, you know, and I've talked to other people, and it's like I'm not really so different, but it's those feelings and emotions and 
things that go on up here that you can't tell anybody. You can't tell anybody. You know, how can you tell somebody that you're scared to death because there's now they've, like, you wake up and they hand you this baby, and it's like you're supposed to know what to do with this baby. And, you know, and I didn't know what to do with the baby. And you can't tell anybody that you don't know what to do with the baby, so you fake it. And, uh, oh, and it's just like I just knew that there was something bad wrong with me that's, some reason that, you know, I just missed all the stuff. You know, y'all seem to go through life and, you know, figured it out and have confidence and do the right thing. And I'm just one screw up after another after another, and I can't get it put together. And uh, uh, I get pregnant with my second son, and uh, we're not communicating much. And he's, like, working two jobs because uh, we have no money. And and I was six months pregnant, and he came in one day, and we had spent the day together, and he came in and uh, took a shower and got dressed and walked out and said, I'm sorry, there's somebody else, and walked out the door. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's what I thought, too. It was like, oh, my God. And uh, something died inside of me that day. I mean, uh, something died inside of me that day, and, and uh, uh, I never felt quite as helpless, hopeless, alone in my whole life as I was that day. That day was the turning point for me. And I wish that I could say that the next day I woke up in Al-Anon, but that's not the way it was. I had a whole bunch more stuff I had to do to get ready for y'all. And, and uh, um, wanted to die and uh, gathered up all the pills in the house and uh, laid them all out there and I couldn't do it. And uh, I remember walking around town um, just wanting to die. And I had to call my mom and tell her that I'm six months pregnant and he's moved out and I have no money and I need help and it was very very difficult to call her and they came and they moved me home and you know there's I need to talk about my mom later but there's just this thing between my mom and I and and I felt like such a total disappointment to her always that there was never any connection I felt like she never liked me and there so there was always this love-hate thing and um I hated the control, and yet I, I couldn't buck it. And so, you know, there was just lots of stuff going on, and, and so I had to call her. And bless her heart, you know, I look back on my life, and, you know, I know I was a disappointment to them. I know that. all the She would always introduce us, the five kids, you know, uh, my brother, Bill, the engineer, and uh, my other brother, Carl, the registered nurse, and my sister, the buyer, and my other sister, the lawyer. And then there's Susan, who works at so-and-so, you know, and, and that's why she'd always introduce us. And so I always felt like I was a total disappointment to her. And and so we moved, I had to move to Dallas, and, and uh, every day I get in my car and I drive down 635 and just every day I'd pray, just give me the courage, just give me the courage. So all I wanted to do was just turn the wheel just that much. If I could just turn it that much, it'd be over. And the madness would quit and the, that that thing inside I could kill and, and it'd be done. And, and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And uh, uh, Aaron was born and, um, gosh, it was back when uh, they were just letting the fathers come into the rooms. And uh, so I was in the semi-private room, and, of course, she had a husband, and he was at every meal, and they'd roll in the baby, and he'd ooh and ah, and they would just be all gooey. And I'd be over here, and nobody would be coming, and I just knew everybody in the hospital was saying, you know, what's wrong with her? 
what is wrong with her? You know, nobody's coming to visit. And da, 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 da. I mean, all the stuff in my head. And I just wanted to die. And now I've got these two kids. My mom has, you know, got it all figured out where I was going to live, what area I need to work in, what we were going to do with the kids. Da, 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 da. And he came to visit. He came to see Aaron, and and uh, he wanted to try it one more time. And oh, and it was like, hmm, you know. And I looked at my mom and all her plans, and I looked at him. And, and one more time, it was just easier, softer to go with him, you know, and try it one more time because the spot was empty, and I needed to fill the spot. And I didn't know that at the time, but I needed to get the spot filled. And he wanted to try it again. Then I went home, and of course she, her baby was born a month later, and she wouldn't leave us alone. And and uh, I was working at a shoe store that was going out of business. And one day I came, I was leaving for work, and came back in because I forgot something. He was on the phone with her, and I got on the extension. And I said, you know what? I can't do this. You need to leave, and you need to be gone by the time I got home. Today, I absolutely know that God did for me what I could not do for myself, because there's no way I could have had the courage to do that. I would just, you know, walked on, just kept doing the deal, just kept pretending like this thing wasn't happening, and and that it was all okay. And um, so I went to work, and I worked with this. Uh, she was semi-retired, and and this just store was going out of business, and and she's like, you know. This was like a few weeks later, and of course I was a mess. And and she's like, "Get a sitter, and uh, we're gonna go out Friday night." And I didn't know what that meant, but it's like, okay. And she told me what to put on, and so I got a sitter, and we went out Friday night. And she took me to my home, <laughs> away from home, until I got to y'all. And it's a place called the Stardust. It's on County Line in Odessa, Texas. And I mean, it's a happening place. And we walked in there, and it was like, there they all were. I mean, this is where they are. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is wonderful, you know. And, man, I just started coming alive. And, you know, oh, man. And, you you know, you figure out, you get one, and, you know, you position yourself and you know you do all that and you know at two o'clock you can find the one that's you know pretty drunk doesn't really care and you know and there you go (laughs) there you go and uh like pat was saying you know i ended up places i couldn't believe i was ended up with people i couldn't believe i was with doing things i couldn't believe i was doing and what i did little by little by little was sell that little piece of dignity and that piece of me over and over and over again because I had to have this spot filled. I don't know if you all understand that, but I had to have this spot filled. If I had that spot filled, I was okay. And if I didn't have that spot filled, there was something missing. Now, I had a hole bigger than Dallas that the wind blew through, you know, and and what I was trying to do is fill it up with a hymn. That hymn that was going to make me okay, you know, and make everything okay, that we could live happily ever after. And I, I went, and I went, and I went, and I went. And, of course, one stuck, you know. I, he stuck, and he kept coming back, and kept coming back. And, man, he he, uh, he introduced me to a, a whole new world. And, and we were on first-name basis with most of the bartenders in Odessa and, and the barmaids. And, you know, it was my family. It was my family, and it's just what we did. And my poor kids, you know, I found a sitter that in the evenings I could take, you know, I'd get them after work, and and we'd bathe and get them ready for bed, and then I'd take them over to the other sitter because I had to go. You know, I've heard the alcoholics say that, you know, they had to drink till they couldn't drink, and I had to go until I couldn't go anymore. I had to go. It was like this thing, and I had to go. 
and um and this one stuck and and uh we started doing the deal and he was uh, took me home one night he was really drunk that night and took me home and and i drank i i've got i'm one of those drinking al anons you know i i drank right along with him until you know i got one and then i didn't have to drink anymore and i you know so, you know, and uh, those of us that come in, I don't know, like that, it's like, well, do we go over here or do we go over there, you know? But I absolutely know that, and I've been drunk, I've passed out, I have thrown up, but I'm not an alcoholic. I, I've sat in enough open meetings that I absolutely know that I am not an alcoholic. I am an Al-Anon of the, my type that, you know, I have to do, I have to go to any lengths to do what I've got to do in order to get the ham that's going to fix me and drinking was just part of the deal and uh so anyway um we've been drinking that night and he took me home and he decided to go back and he was good friends with these barmaids and they had a uh, paper route out in the country and so they were all drunk and they were out delivering these papers this one saturday morning early 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 and they get run over by a tractor trailer and uh he ended up in the hospital for about three months after that. And uh, when he finally did get out, he was addicted to all kinds of painkillers. And I never saw him sober. He drank from the time he woke up in the morning until he could pass out at night. And if he couldn't get passed out, we were in the car going in the emergency room so he could get a shot. And it was just, you know, it was just that merry-go-round that we talk about in our meetings and that pamphlet, that merry-go-round that you get on. And, I mean, we were doing it. I was, I was insane. I was insane because now he's a mess, and I've got to get him straightened up so that, you know, he can take care of me. And he's not doing a very good job taking care of me, so I've got to fix him so he's going to take care of me, and then we can have that picture finally. And uh, so I'm doing all this insane things that we good Al-Anons do, you know. I poured it out and then went and got more, you know. I'd take him to the emergency room to get the shots, you know. One time he told me that, you know, I just I can't stand the pain anymore. I can't stand the pain anymore. So I had a contract put out on myself. I thought, hmm, I don't know if you can do that or not, you know. And so I had to stay on high alert for a very long time because I didn't know if they were coming or not, you know. And it was like, shoot, what do you do with them if they come? I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's just that insanity, that insanity. Now, all during this time, I left the shoe store right before it went out of business and, uh, I got a job working at a country western radio station and uh, ran the automation. And it was run by a drunk. He was, you know, I was just gathering up alcoholics like crazy, you know. It's just like, and uh, he had been sober in AA for a long time and went to a party and drank some spike punch and been drunk ever since. And as far as I know, he died drunk. You know, sad deal. And he was a, he was one of those guys that, and I love alcoholics. And I much prefer him sober, but I love alcoholics. And, you know, we had another, you know, one of those love-hate relationships, you know. And when he was on, you know, we just, we just, and then he'd get mad at me and he wouldn't speak to me for weeks, you know. And we could be the only three people, there'd be three people on the radio station. And he would walk up to the other person to tell me something that he needed to tell me because he wasn't speaking to me. And, you know, we just did those deals and. God love him. And uh, um, it was back when Ray Price was real popular, and I'd put on Ray, and he'd sing for the good times. And I'd cry, and Ray'd sing, and we'd do a day. And <laughs> and we had a part-time engineer. His name was Charlie Devonport, and, and uh, he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he and I became very, very good friends. And and uh, his day to come service the radio station was on Thursday. Uh, Monday, July the 8th of 1974, 
uh, it was the day of all crisis. You know, that crisis is going to end all crisis that you're just not going to live through because this is the one. This is the big one, you know, and it was that one. God only knows what it was. But, you know, it's just like <laughs> by this time my hair hurt. My my fingernails hurt. You know, it hurt to walk through the air. You know, it's just, oh. And, you know, that day was like that. And uh, I... Um, I uh, went to work, and Charlie came in that day, my first God deal. And uh, he sat down, and there was nobody else in the radio station, another God deal. And, and he sat, and he 12-stepped me. And he said, Susan, he said, I, I know what's going on in your home. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a place. There's a place that you might want to go to. And there's a meeting tonight, and uh, I'll be happy to take you. And so I went and uh, um, didn't have any any expectation whatsoever, y'all. Didn't have any expectation of what I would get out of it. He just said, there's a place where you could get some help, and I'll take you. So I took him up on it. You know, it's like I was desperate. I was desperate. I was at that jumping off place. That morning I woke up, and it's like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. All that fear was on top of me. And it's like I couldn't do I could not do another day. I could not do another day. The pain was too great. I just couldn't do another day. And I didn't know what I was going to do about that, but I just knew I couldn't do another day. And that night I ended up in an Al Anon meeting. Um and it was on step one, another God thing. And I tell you, uh I love the little thing that uh, is laying around on all the tables is hope he'll, hope is found here. And, you know, today, looking back on that night, I absolutely know that what happened to me is I walked into the heart of God when I walked into that first meeting. I walked in there, and they instilled just enough hope in me that my life could be different, that that's what kept me coming back for a long time. Now, I did not understand that when I was a newcomer. I did not understand what the meeting was about. I didn't understand any of that. I just knew that there was something there, and I was going to get it. I didn't know, I didn't understand it, but I just kept going back, and I'm so grateful for that. But that first night, they talked about step one, and it was like being hit in the face with a frying pan, man. It was like, alcoholism is a disease, you can't do anything about it, whap, you know, it's like, (laughs) you can't control it, you can't cure it, and you can, uh, whatever the third one is, you know. Cause it. Yeah, cause it. That's a big one. You know, and it's like another frying pan. It's like, huh. And by the end of the meeting, I was a basket case. And I went and found Charlie because he's the only one I knew. And, and uh walked up to him, and I was just blubbering. And it's like, Charlie, I don't understand. They said there's not anything I can do. What is going to happen to us? And he looked at me, and I believe it's the grace of God that allowed me to hear these words. He said, Susan, I don't know what's going to happen for him. But there is help here for you if you will just keep coming back. And for a brief moment, I heard that. Now, also in the back of my head, I was thinking, okay, there's 12 steps. You know, there's got to be more to this than the fact that I can't do anything about it. And uh, so maybe there's some kind of test. And if I study those 12 steps, I'm a good test taker. You know, I'll, I'll get this thing figured out. And then I can go to the secret meeting, because they must have secret meetings for those that have passed the test, and talk about the real stuff on how to get them sober. And then I could get that solution, go home, get him sober, and we'll live happily ever after. Now, that's the real reason I kept coming back. It's like I couldn't figure you out. I could not figure you out. 
I am grateful that I was desperate. You know, we talk in our group a lot about being desperate because I was willing to do, I was willing to stand on my head in the corner if you told me I'd feel better because it hurts so bad. And so I just kept going back, and, and uh, this little gal that uh, Charlie introduced me to, bless her heart, she picked me up for meetings, and she wasn't much, she hadn't been going much longer than I'd been going, and but we became fast friends, and, and uh, she'd pick me up, and we'd sit in my driveway, and all that stuff that you couldn't talk about, that you put away somewhere, that you stuffed down, all that that insanity that you could not tell anybody about, you know, started coming up little by little by little. And bless her heart, she listened to me for hours. And uh, uh, she saved my life. She saved my life. Now, I don't really have a sponsor because I don't understand what sponsors are because you can't ask questions, you know. And so, you know, I sit in your meetings and I try to figure it all out. You know, I just try to figure it all out. And uh, so I'm going, I've been going about six months, and uh, I had my first spiritual experience. And, and I have, oh, God, I was so sick. And they asked me to be the 10-minute speaker on a Monday night, a week before. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, when when you grow up, like, uh, the speech was the very last class that I would ever take in my life, you know, because I didn't want anybody to know I was there. And so you blend in. And, you know, and, and so getting up in front of people and talking was not something I ever did. Thank you very much. And so I was a nervous wreck. And uh, so I wrote out and I wrote out and I wrote out and I studied and I read probably more than I had the entire six months I'd been there, you know, and. And it got to be the next Monday night, and I was absolutely terrified. And I prayed my first prayer in here. And it was simply, God, if you really do do what these folks say, then help me because I can't do this. And I remember I got up there, and I did my little 10-minute spiel. God only knows what I said. And uh, the important thing was, though, is that I didn't faint going up there. I didn't throw up. I didn't pass out. And I was able to get back to my chair, and I remember... As clearly today as that day was that I got goosebumps all over because I absolutely became aware that God had answered that prayer. And it was my first spiritual awakening, um, which was very important to me because I looked at your steps and I looked at that whole God thing and it's like, oh, my gosh. Because I had had a spiritual experience growing up as a kid and uh, uh, it was one of those really cool ones, you know. It's like for the very first time, for a very brief period of time, I felt like I judged that you felt because of the way you looked in church. You know, I, I felt that spiritual stuff that you talked about uh, that I never had before. And uh, it was so cool that night. And I thought, oh, this is, it was just grand, you know. And I was with a bunch of kids. And we got home late. My mother met us at the door with a finger. And she was mad. And those feelings went away, which... You know, you don't ask questions, and nobody had said, you know, Susan, these feelings will probably come and go. So, but, you know, I made a decision that night based on the fact that that feeling left, that God must not like me. This thing with God does not work. And I didn't have anything to do with God until I got here. I had one other experience, and that was when I was working at that radio station. We did a little show for this little Southern Baptist um, church in town, and the preacher and I got to be pretty good friends because I'd always run this little program. And, and uh, one Saturday he molested me. And, and that just sealed that sealed the coffin, you know. And, and it was like, this God thing doesn't work. This God deal does not work. And you couldn't tell anybody about it. 
you know, and I tried to tell my boss, and he didn't believe me. So it's like, okay, there must be something wrong with me. So he stuffed that away. So I come in here, and you tell me I've got to get a relationship with God. It's like, uh-uh, no, thank you. This will not work for me. Thank God I didn't have any place else to go. I did not have any place else to go. And besides that, you can give me that little test so that I could get the deal and get him sober, you know. And so it's like, ah. Uh. So I just kept coming. It, uh, I don't know how long I was here, and uh, he didn't like me coming at all. He didn't like it at all, and uh, he decided to move down to Houston. And, you know, for the very first time, it was okay. He just went, and I was okay. I went to my meeting. I went to my meeting, and I was totally amazed. Okay, so I'm going to meetings, and I'm doing the deal. I don't have a sponsor. I'm not really working the steps. I'm just going to meetings. And I have come to understand that if nothing changes, nothing changes, nothing changes, you know. And this spot's empty. And I'm going to meetings, and I gen around the, my group. You walk in, you shake the hands of the three generals at the door. You walked in, and uh, there's a little refrigerator. You got your Coke, and I went to the Al-Anon meeting, and the AA meeting was in the back. And I didn't have anybody in the back, so I really didn't know a whole lot of them. And, I'd, you know, I'm still too new. And if you don't ask questions, you don't get a whole lot of information, you know. And uh, I didn't know I could go to open AA meetings at that point. And uh, I was just going to my two little Al-Anon meetings, and... I went around, get my Coke, and there he sat. Caught that obsession. Didn't hear the meeting. I raced out of that meeting afterwards to, you know, we hooked up. Long story short, I married him. And Now, he's real. The thing that I've come to understand about me is that my picker is real broke. I mean, it is real broke. The only thing about him is that he doesn't drink. He's over a year sober living in a halfway house. You know, he has no job. Uh, I mean, it's like, uh, but he doesn't drink. <laughs> he doesn't drink. Oh, Lordy. He backed out five times the day we were going to get married. And I'm the good Al Anon. I convinced him that we really do need to get married. And we ended up getting married. Oh. The thing about that is he moved me to Lubbock, Texas, where I was about a year in this program. And that's where I met the sponsor that I have today. And... uh you know, I was dying. I was just dying on the inside. You know, this started out pretty much the way my first one did. It was good for about six days, and the reality set in. And, Lord, it was just not pretty. And we moved to Lubbock, and, and uh, I've got these two kids, and he's abusive, and it's just not pretty. And I'm just sitting I'm sitting at the hub one day, and, and she walked in one Sunday afternoon. And it's like, you know, I'm missing something, <laughs> obviously. And uh, I'm dying on the inside, and uh, um, I need help. And uh, she's changed my life. She put me in the middle of that big book. We started working the steps. Uh, she got me in the middle of this program, and uh, my life has never been the same. Uh, we were talking at lunch. Um, there's just no way to get to where my life is today from where I came from. There's just no way. I mean, when you look at it logically, there's no way to get from there to there. Everything that I am, everything that I have in my life today is because of this program. It saved my life. It saved my life. So, you know, getting on a plane and coming here is absolutely no big, I mean, there's no way I can pay it back. So it's just like, I mean, it just doesn't even, it just doesn't cut it. So I just keep trying to give it back because it's absolutely saved my life. Um, and we started doing the deal, and, and uh, uh, she 
got me into the steps and I did an inventory. And one Sunday I woke up and all the fear of my whole life just seemed like it was on top of me. I don't know how to describe it. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. I couldn't think. The only thing that was running through my head was, God, let her be home. God, let her be home. I picked up my purse and keys, got in the car, and I drove out to her trailer, and she was home. And I'm so grateful that my sponsor stays prayed up and current in this program. And I got there, and she says there are about three people in this program that have scared her. It's not a list that I aspired to be on, but I'm on it. And uh, she said, when I hit her trailer, there wasn't anybody home. And she pulled me in, and we said a prayer, and... and uh, um, I gave away that inventory that day, and God moved into my life, and the fear left, and has never been back. Now there have been times when I've been scared, and you know, da 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 da, but not that kind of fear that I ran on on a daily basis before I got here. Left, and it's never been back, and God moved in, and She set me on a, a journey, a spiritual journey that I just, I mean, it's totally amazed. Just totally amazed. The last thing that I wanted out of this thing was a relationship with God. Very last thing. And it's absolutely the thing that I'm about today. It's just, there just aren't words. There are no words. So, anyway, we're we're doing the deal. And uh, he takes a job in Vernon, Texas. Now, nobody here probably knows where Vernon, Texas is. Vernon, Texas is like the armpit of Texas, let me tell you. It has a Selenese plant and a state hospital, and that's it. Oh, and I show up at meetings, and sometimes there'd be somebody there, sometimes there wouldn't. And bless those little AA hearts, they would open up the meeting and let me sit in the meeting. Uh, I thought God had dropped me in the desert and left me. It, uh, oh, it was a very, very, it's kind of a scary little time in, and, uh, in my program. And, uh, you know, every time I could think of something, I'd invite my sponsor down, and we'd have, you know, three people at the meeting, but I had my sponsor there. You know, it was just just one of those times. And, and we're not – it's getting worse and worse and worse in my home, and, and my kids are um, – was just a lot of stuff going on in my home. And, and uh, so I do an inventory, and I, I head off to the women's conference down in Brownwood, Texas, and I meet her there, and, and I, I give away this inventory. She gave me some things to do. And one of them was a prayer that I I, need, I had to pray every day and, and uh, read page 449 in the big book and uh, uh, just get to that place of acceptance. And I somewhere God moved into this thing. And, and my prayer was, you know, God, if I'm supposed to stay, show me how to stay. And if I'm supposed to go, show me how to go. Because I want, I absolutely want your will more than I want my own. I absolutely want your will in my life. And I know a lot of this. I love the third step writing where it says, you know, we base decisions on self that have later places in a position to be hurt. That's the story of my life, you know. And I I married him based on self-will. And uh, it was becoming more and more evident all the time. And so I did that. And I worked at a security guard at the Selenese plant. And my, my little guard shack wasn't even bigger than this little podium thing and oh it was so dreary and uh she had me doing the whole gratitude thing and every day i'd get there and it's like god thank you for letting me open up this guard shack so i can come and do a job today and thank you for letting me be a service to these trucks so i can open up the gate you know and it just all day long and it's just oh you know and i was doing that and uh um i got a promotion and uh went from night shift to day shift and and uh got a raise and the day I started that shift, 
I get a phone call, and it was him, and he said, you know what, I can't do this any longer. I can't do this any longer. And it's like, you know what, I understand. I can't either. Hung up the phone. Now, I'm not going to tell you that there wasn't hard times, sad times, fearful times, all the stuff that goes along with that. But I absolutely knew in my core that God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And God had answered that prayer. And it was absolutely the best thing for everyone concerned. So we got a divorce. My sponsor was getting married in Norman, which wasn't too far from where I was. And she said, come up. And so I came up with part of her wedding. And she's like, why don't you just move the kids up here and we'll just do the deal. And I did. And, and I found a job, found a house. And, and uh, I lived on a row. And uh, the clubhouse where the group met was on the corner. And then there was this whole little strip. And there was one woman, um, normal woman, Bless her, I don't know how she survived this, you know. And then I lived next door to her with the kids. And then there was a bunch of A women that next door, door to me and a bunch of A guys next door. And we were just up and down and fellowshipping. And, and that group is a lot of what our group's based on, you know, that family recovery. We did everything together. We just did everything together. They were at our meetings, our open meetings, and uh, we, did, we traveled together. We did road trips together. We went to conferences together. It didn't matter whether you were an AA or Al-Anon. We just did the deal. We just did the deal. I started sponsoring a bunch of women. It was fun, active, lots of fellowship. Dave Bray lived in the house of the guys, and we discovered we loved to play pinochle. We started playing pinochle. We were up and down, for, and he and I were good, good friends for about three years, and, and just doing the deal. And somewhere in there, and I did a lot of stuff, step work stuff. I did the whole looking at the motherhood thing was, oh, God, it's like, oh, just cut both my arms off. It would be less painful than this one, you know. It's like, oh, you know, and sitting in front of her, and, and you know, she started sharing some stuff with about herself, and, and it's like, I just made it okay. You know, uh, she gave me some things to do, and I was able to go start making amends to my two boys and, and uh, put them in Alateens. And, and uh, you know, God always stands people in the gap. You know, it's just like I was thinking about Kaylin's talk and, and all the people that stood in the gap for her. And, and, you know, I've always had people stand in the gap for me. And, and I've had those grandmothers and those mothers and, you know, and guys have stood in the gap for my kids. And, you know, and this one A guy was my oldest son's sponsor. And he'd pick him up every Saturday and they go off to coffee just like he was a new drunk. And he worked him through the steps. And I absolutely watched something happen in that kid's life, you know. My younger son was... Uh, he he wasn't doing well at all and um, just ugh, and uh, uh, doing a lot of getting in trouble at school. He was overweight, he was doing a lot of stuff, and nothing was working. I had him in counseling, had him allotting. He didn't like either one, you know. Uh, somebody had a farm. We tried that. I mean, it was just nothing was working. And, you know, I love how I, I just show up and I do the things that you tell me to do. Sometimes I don't know why. I just do them. You know, and later on, it's, you know, it's revealed why you're doing what you're doing. And we were starting women's conferences, and we started one in Missouri, and we were up there. And I was sitting on a workshop in forgiveness. And, you know, I'd worked through the steps. I'd written that ex-husband that letter because I could communicate with him. I had to communicate with her, and it didn't seem fair to make an amends to her through, you know, through her to him. You know, it's just like that isn't quite right. So I wrote a letter with my sponsor's permission and uh, so I'm sitting in this workshop on forgiveness and uh, realized that, you know, I had asked for forgiveness on my part. And, you know, I had a big part in the whole thing. And um, 
But I had never, ever dropped the rock. I had never. It was always that little thing back here of what he did to me. You know, that I could never quite lay down. And that day, something was said in that workshop, and uh, it was abundantly clear that that was my solution. And I went and found my sponsor, and she gave me something to do, and I went and did that, and I was able to lay down that rock that day. And, oh, man, what freedom. What freedom. So when we were going through all this with Aaron and, you know, trying to figure out solutions for him, and the very last thing he did was steal a bunch of stuff from my sponsor's house. It was like, yo, God, you just want to, you know, crawl in a hole and die, you know, then face her. Oh, man. And she called me up, and she's like, we need to talk about Aaron. And it's like, oh. And it wasn't about the stuff. She just knew my kid was in trouble, you know. And she so we started praying. And, and one day, you know, it just hit me. And I picked up the phone, and I called called their dad and he answered the phone and I hadn't talked to him in years and it's like you know what I'm in trouble with Aaron and I've tried all this stuff and nothing's working and he said send him out here to me and he lived in Arizona so when my kid was 14 I put him on a plane with a lot of prayer and sent him out there and he spent the summer and he really really wanted to come home and uh, after a lot of prayer and work with my sponsor I absolutely knew as much as I wanted to die I needed to leave him there and uh, it did, and uh, he turned his life. I mean, as far as I know, he's never stolen another thing, and he lost 50 pounds and, and uh, started getting good grades in school and started, you know, getting his life put together. And uh, my grand sponsor, bless her heart, she pulled me aside one day, and she said, I know you're in so much pain, and I'm going to start praying for you, and I can carry some of your pain because I'm in a good place. And so she helped me through that, and it was tough. And y'all gathered me up. I love the fact that the first step starts with we, because I don't have to go through anything by myself. No matter how painful, I don't have to go through it by myself. And what a gift that is. Um, We sent him out there, and uh, Dave's job, he got uh, transferred, uh, we thought, to Tulsa at that time, and ended up being to Arizona. And he called me up, and he said, we're moving to Arizona. And I absolutely knew why we were going out there. Went out there, and Aaron and I got to put the thing back together, you know. And uh, he was going to college, and he called me up. And he's like, Mom, I'd really like to come spend the summer with you. Could I live with you? And he came, and he was in my home, and we got to put the thing back together. And I got to make amends to him, and he, we just had, it just got healed. It just got healed. It just got healed. Just by me just showing up and doing what you tell me to do. You know, fully believing that, you know, I can't do this deal. You know, I just can't do this deal. But you tell me, you go take the right action. You just go be a good mother. You go be a good daughter. You go take those actions that a good mom would do. And I just kept doing that, fully believing that this deal wasn't going to, I mean, it, it was unfixable. And But nothing's unfixable with God. Nothing. And so we got to put that back together. And he and I are best friends about uh, four years ago, he got really, really sick, and he was sick off work for a year, and I got to go out there and spend a lot of time with him, and we got so close. And I got a birthday card in January from him, and, and in it he wrote, he's like, I can't tell you what our relationship means to me, but you're absolutely my best friend. How do you do that? I don't know. So anyway... Got to put that thing back together. My oldest son joined the Marines. Um, yeah. 
He was a good Marine. He signed up for six years, not four. Uh, halfway through, somewhere along the way, he called me up. He's like, Mom, I took my first step. It's like, you're going to Al-Anon? He's like, no, I joined AA. And I'm like... What happened? <laughs> he did a year in AA, um, quit drinking, got a year. Actually, the real truth is, this is my perception of what went on. This is not his story. This is what I perceived to go on. He was dating that little Marine that was sober in AA, and uh, she had oh, many sponsors and doing counseling and group therapy and doing all this stuff, and he was chasing her around and uh, joining everything that she joined. And uh, and one of the things that I know is, you know, all that all that stuff is out there for me to pick up if I choose. You know, if left to my own devices, that's where I go. And what was happening to him is all that stuff was getting picked at and uncovered and <laughs> rediscovered. And he was getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And about after a little after a year, he called me up. It's like, I can't do this anymore. And it's like, son, you just do what you need to do because I love you. And, and, you know, from that point to this, he's never come back. And he's not drunk, but he's never come back. So, you know, I don't know. He's a good kid. He has my oldest granddaughter, and uh, um, I'll tell you where he is in a minute. But uh, Our very first heart-to-heart that we started in Oklahoma, we had a woman there by the name of Marcy White, who's now passed away. And Marcy absolutely changed my life that weekend because Marcy always talked about the blessing. And that day she did a, her talk, and in her talk she talked about it. I'd never heard her talk about it before. And she said, yeah, the blessing is every child's right when they're born. And it's every parent's responsibility to give that child the blessing. And she said, the blessing is nothing more than you're absolutely loved exactly the way you are. That you are so special and you are a gift from God and you're loved in every way possible that I could love you. And what she said was, because of alcoholism and our disease through the ages, that got lost. And our parents couldn't give us the blessing because they never received the blessing. She said, but the good news is, is that when we come here, we give the blessing to each other every meeting. You know, we love each other unconditionally. We help each other, you know, and we heal each other by our unconditional love. She said, so claim the blessing today. But when you claim the blessing, then you have a responsibility. And you need to turn around and you need to give it back to your parents. You need to give it to those kids that you failed to give it to. You have a responsibility. And so I started doing that with uh, my parents. And because, uh, um, you know, it's just always that thing with my mom. It's always that thing. And I can't tell you how many inventories I've done on mother. You know, and my sponsor and I kind of shortcutted it. I mean, it's just like I call her up and it's like, well, mom. And she's like, oh, I know mom. You know, and it's like, and that's all it took, you know, because some days I go because I always went. She told me, you have to go. You have to go no matter what. Even if for 10 minutes, the right action, the right principle action is that you have to go. And you treat her with kindness and dignity and respect and as much love and you keep passing that blessing back to her. And I kept doing that, and some days I'd be like this bloody mess driving home, you know, but I would always go and do it. And most of the time, most of the time, she did not know I was a bloody mess when I left there. And that's the real gift of this program. 
uh, about five years ago, they, uh, she and my dad were in a, well, actually what happened was dad ran over her with the car. That's what happened. And uh, she was in intensive care. And uh, I happened to be at my grand sponsor's house down in Austin, and they were in Waco. And so I managed to get over to Waco, and I walked into intensive care, and mother was full of fear, fighting everybody. And I walked in, and I said, Mother, I'm here. You need to calm down, and you need to breathe. And she connected with me, and for that whole week, she didn't want anybody else in her room but me. Boy, it pissed off my other two sisters, let me tell you, because they've the, always been the favorite kids, you know. And my, In fact, my sister said to me one time, it's like, I do not understand. Mother doesn't like you. Why does she want you in a room? <laughs> and something happened. My dad got sick uh, with cancer uh, in 2000. And, you know, because I was able to go help my sponsor bury her husband, uh, I was able to go be of service to my dad. Because that's what you teach us to do here. You know, go be a service. You know, just go be a service. It doesn't matter how you feel. You go be a service. And my sponsor taught me a real trick about the shower. I mean, lots of stuff so that I could go deal with it and be the best example of this program I could be to them. And that's what I did. And I was able to bury my dad. I was able to keep him at home and uh, send him off. And I was able to crawl up in bed with him before he died and uh, make that final amends and, and get the blessing. Because he told me, he told me how much he loved me. And so we got to bury him, and my mom was a mess. And, and uh, uh, you know, I have a call time with my sponsors Tuesday nights at 9.30. And I uh, set up a call time with my mom, and it was on Tuesdays at 5.30. Now I talked to her a lot, but at Tuesday at 5.30, without fail, my mother knew I was calling. And she'd be sitting in her chair, and she'd have her cigarettes and her coffee waiting for my call. And we talked every Tuesday. And um, one day we were sitting on the back porch and we were doing something. I don't remember. We were the only ones there. And she started talking about her growing up time. And, you know, my sponsor had told me a long time ago, she said, I want you to pray this prayer. And it was simply, God, show me what it is that stands between her and me that blocks that love. And so we were sitting out on that back porch one day and... uh, she said, you know, Susan, I have lived every day of my life in fear. And I said, Mama, I'm so sorry. And the thing of it is, is that for that day until she died, I was able to look at my mama a little differently. I was able to forgive all the control. Because, you know, I was able to finally understand. Because they never talked about it. They never talked about their growing up. So, and she kept saying to me, Susan, I hope God lets me live long enough to live out my dream. And I said, Mama, I hope you do too. But she could never get past the fear. She could never get past the fear. She called me up one day. She's like, I want to move. I was like, you do? Oh, my God. And she said, so she wanted to move to Austin where my brother was. So she said, and I want you to drive me. So I flew to Dallas, and I drove her to Austin. And that weekend... We looked at all kinds of houses. So that weekend, she bought a four-bedroom, three-bath home with a swimming pool. <laughs> She's 75. <laughs> Her dream was always to find this little place on a stream so that she could go out fishing every day. And we took her out, and we found some places like that. But she could not get past the fear of doing that. So her next best solution was to buy the big old house. 
So we did, and we moved her, uh, and she called me up. She's like, I'm ready to move, and she said, I want you to drive me. So I drove her to her new home, and we set it up, and that was in Thanksgiving um, three years ago. And two years ago in March, I was doing the deal and work, and it's a Friday night, March the 14th, and, and uh, I didn't go home for some reason right after work and uh, just pilled around. Got home about 9 o'clock, and my sister was on the recorder. And my mom had gotten killed in a car wreck that day. And I called Dave, and he came home. And You know, the very first thing he said to me was, Thank God everything's been said. Thank God everything's been said. And I know that. Everything's been healed. Everything's been said. The thing of it is, is I miss my mom. And I never thought I would get to that place. You know, there was nothing between us anymore. You know, we just, we just got the blessing. We just got the blessing. And I'm so grateful. Uh, it's been, it's been, you know, my dad died, my mom died, my son was sick for a year. And then my husband got laid off from his job two years ago. And that's been an experience. And uh, it's a whole new level of powerlessness for me. You know, I had to go back. It's amazing to me how subtle my disease is. It's amazing. I was even praying so that Dave would get okay. (laughs) And it's like I wasn't even realizing I was doing it. You know, it's like I was trying to control it through prayer. You know, anything. You know, just make this okay. And I had to get to that place of, you know, I'm powerless. I cannot fix this for him. I can love him and I can care about him, but I cannot fix it for him. And he's got his own spiritual path. And we started a business about eight months ago. And my husband, you know, he was so excited and he has been in so much fear. It's, it's amazing. He's 25 years sober. And the thing that I've learned through this is I can never take sobriety for granted. It is a daily reprieve and it is a gift from God. And nobody is exempt from going back out. It's the thing that I've learned this year. And I'm so grateful that I sit in open AA meetings so that I can hear that over and over and over again and be reminded that alcoholism is alive and well in our home. And it will always be. It is arrested by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and, for me, the program of Al-Anon. And all we have is a daily reprieve. The thing that's come out of it, though, is that uh, we've started praying together more. Uh, he used to sleep long past I'd leave for work. And... Uh, he came to me and he's like, you know, I want to start praying together in the mornings. And so I get him up and we read a, a, a daily devotional and we do the third step prayer together and we pray for each other. And it's absolutely changed us. I don't know what's going to unfold in this. I don't know what God's got in store for us. I do know that we're going to be okay. I've done poor before. I know how to do poor, so it's like no big deal to me. <laughs> You know, and uh, uh, I know I, I, we're just in the middle of it. I don't like being in the middle of whatever it is, and we're in the middle of it. And so, you know, it just is stretching me spiritually, and, you know, um, God's helped me trust more. And, you know, I don't know. It's yet to be disclosed. My oldest son moved back in in December. Uh, one of my amends to him is that I couldn't send him to school. And uh, when my mom got killed, his desire was to get closer to family. And God gave us this AA house that we use a lot for AA. And I've got four bedrooms and three baths and two bedrooms we weren't using. And it's like they're yours. And 
they took us up on it, so they moved us inside my granddaughter at home, and it's awesome. And, you know, I don't know what God's going to do for that either. You know, it's not mine to know, and uh, uh, it's just for mine to suit up and show up and do a day, and that's what y'all taught me. It's just do a day. You know, God's in control. I'm not. You know, and you've given me a solution for every single thing that's come down in my life. And I can never, ever repay that except by suiting up, showing up, and sitting in my spiritual chair yet one more day. I want to thank you for allowing me to share things.